morning. Welcome to St. James Lutheran Church. I'm glad you're here. A couple quick announcements. One is the usual at 11.30 a.m. is uh, Bible study. We're talking about Jesus as the true Israel. Uh, sign up for that or send me an email or a text to sign up for that if you're interested in being part of that. Uh, the second announcement is um, kind of a, a youth group thing. So Stacy has the youth group uh, reading through the Psalms over the next few months. And um, you're not required to do this, of course. Uh, hopefully you all are in God's Word daily anyway. But if you wanted to add to that the Psalm thing, it would be really cool if we were all reading the Psalms together. And I think that today is Psalm 6, I think. So you're not so far behind if, you ha you know, if you're just starting now. You're not so far behind that you couldn't, you couldn't catch up in 20 minutes. So today, read Psalm 1 through 6, and then every day for the next several months, it would be really cool if all of us as a church and anybody who was watching on the live stream uh, could read this together as well. It would, be, it would be neat to read through the Psalms together. I think that's uh, all the announcements I have for today. So let's go ahead and stand and we'll begin worship. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us confess our sin to God. O Lord, great God, all holy, Father most gracious, filled with mercy and steadfast love, we are embarrassed to come before you, for we have rebelled against your wisdom and have gotten into trouble. For we have rejected your fatherly guidance and have gotten lost altogether, and therefore we are embarrassed. To you belongs righteousness, O Lord, and to us confusion of face. O Lord, great God, all holy Father, most gracious, filled with mercy and steadfast love, incline your ear to our troubles. Hear us when we pour out our sorrows before you. Forgive us, not on the ground of our own righteousness, but on the ground of your great mercy, on the ground of your great mercy, in the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. For he is our Savior and the mediator of the covenant of grace. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from 1 John. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven on account of Jesus' name. Amen. Psalms from Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pistol reading uh, is from Romans chapter 13 this morning, and let me just set it up for you a little bit. Um, there's one explanation I have to make. Paul's about to tell us that it's our responsibility to obey the governing authorities, and the reason why is theological, because they are actually working on behalf of and underneath the auspices of the authority of God himself. So this is a Luther's great insight into the two kingdoms, that Christ rules through his word, but God also has a governing authorities in the world by which he rules as well. And this describes, I say that now because um, 
when I read this, you're going to think, oh, that sounds like a pretty good ruler that we should obey. Somebody who's working for God. And actually, uh, the emperor, when uh, Paul wrote this, was Nero. So this is not somebody who is an admirable person or even an effective ruler by worldly standards. And certainly not by biblical standards was he a good or godly man. But Paul still insists that even as bad as Nero is, he works for God. God has him there for God's purposes, and so it's our duty to obey him as an agent of God. So Paul says in Romans 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. This is very anti-American, right? We, we, we pride ourselves on those who, when the government gets a little bit too strong for us, you know, what does Jefferson say about the, uh, the uh, you know, every once in a while, revolution is good for sight. Actually, Paul says, I know the authorities that exist are there by uh, God's power, and whoever resists them will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what's good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. On the other hand, thinking in a gospel-centric fashion, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Trust in Him, no other. My soul is. Safe. 
gospel according to St. Matthew, the 18th chapter. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, doesn't he leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it's not the will of my Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the gospel of the Lord. Well, uh, so we finished the uh, Romans 5-8 through 8 series last week, and uh, so we're done with it this week. I have uh, uh, another sermon series in the hopper that's going to start in a bit. Meanwhile, between now and then, 
what we're going to do is we're just going to read through the lectionary readings for the particular Sundays and then uh, think about those. Uh, so the lectionary reading for today was Romans 13, epistle reading was Romans 13, and then the gospel reading is Matthew 18, 1 through 20, which there's a lot to it. And so I'm not going to try and talk about all of uh, verses 1 through 20. And I thought we would just talk about the first, the, the, the first few verses there, uh, 1 through 5, uh, the bit about um, uh, becoming like a child, humbling yourself like a child, and discuss what that means. Just to set up, if I can, uh, the, the disciples come to Jesus, and in verse 1, they say to him, um, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, this is not an academic question for them. This is not, hey, we just like to know, what's your definition of greatness, Jesus? How do we define who's going to have the power in the kingdom? They're on their way to Jerusalem. Here's the setting. They're on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples are all completely convinced that at Jerusalem, a climactic event whereby God is going to act decisively to liberate Israel is going to happen. Now, the disciples are convinced that the revolution is going to start. Public opinion is going to be gathered and... Uh, Crowds of people are going to join up with Jesus and the disciples. They're going to overrun the Roman garrison stationed in Caesarea. And Israel will once again, like 150 years before this, in the days of Judas Maccabees, Israel will once again be a free, independent nation, and the pagans will be ousted. Jesus keeps explaining to them that I agree with you. I'm the Messiah. God's about to act decisively. But I'm going to die for that to happen. And they just don't hear him because it doesn't fit into their worldview at the time. But so what I'm saying is, is that what the disciples are after here is not a philosophical discussion about the nature of power and greatness in the kingdom. But can I be in charge, please? Which one of us gets to be like the most in charge whenever we finally rule over Israel? In fact, if we go to, if we go to the Mark version of this story, Jesus, they're on the road to Jerusalem, and Jesus at one point says, hey guys, what were you talking about a few minutes ago back there? And they don't answer him because they're embarrassed because they were having a disagreement about who was going to be the greatest one out of all of them. Same context, a couple chapters after that in Mark. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to Jesus and say, hey, we just want to put our cards on the table. Me and him. Can, can we like be your vice messiahs when it, comes to, you know, when it comes to that moment? And remember Jesus says to them, oh, you don't really know what you're asking for. You think you're asking for political power, but what you're really asking for is death. Let's just hold off on that. This is too much for you. You can't be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with. So you see what's at stake here, right? This is about power and status and how can we get it. And the disciples think like me and you think about power and status and how we can get it. And Jesus has a different, Jesus has a different formula for greatness in his kingdom. And let me point out three things uh, from what Jesus says in verses 1 through 5 about what greatness in the kingdom involves here. First of all, you have to give up your status. Second of all, whatever status you have, you have to give away. You have to give away your status. And then third, you have to receive a brand new status. Greatness in the kingdom is going to involve giving up our status, giving away our status, and then receiving a new status. So first of all, giving up our status. Look in verse, uh, let me read verses two through four again. Uh, Jesus says, Jesus takes a child and he brings them in the midst of them. So picture this, a little kid in the midst of the disciples having this discussion about greatness and political power. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless you turn, unless you repent and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
Hold on to that for a second, and let me talk about what I mean by status first. Status is that thing in any culture that is honorable, admirable. The people who have it, we want to be around them. The people who have it, we want to give them power. We ourselves want power so that we can get that status. There's a symbiotic relationship between power and status. Many, status is different in every culture. In every culture. Some cultures, in, in the Far East, for instance, status is heavily tied up with age. The older you get, the higher your status in that culture. It's not the way it is in the West, by the way. So I, I tell my students at the college, 18 to 25, enjoy it. You have the highest status you'll ever have right now. Like the culture makes music for you. The culture designs clothes for you. The culture makes TV shows and movies for you. Once you, hit, once you hit 30, it's all downhill. And the farther away you get from 30, the lower and lower your status in the culture gets. I was, I think, when I was preparing for this, I was thinking about in India, for instance. Well, let me, you guys know what status is in our culture. Almost, it's so tied up with money. Money and personal property is the way you get status in our culture. You guys feel it. You feel the desire for this. And for, for many of you, it's not even like, you know, I, I need more money because I need to buy more things, but it's I need more money because... That's what, that's what mo upward mobility is in this country. Celebrity, frequently tied up with this as well, but always in the Western mind, celebrity and money will go together. If you're the kind of celebrity who's fallen on hard times, you know, think about the, the, um, you know, the actresses from, uh, and the actors from the 80s and 90s who you're, they're not on TV anymore. They've kind of bottomed out. Maybe they have problems with substance abuse. And your, your only access to them at this point is Instagram. Uh, you'll know that they have a certain sort of celebrity but we kind of look down on them because they've lost the money that goes along with it. I was, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about India. So India has a caste system. It's been kind of challenged in the past 150 years by, you know, Western uh, ideas. But there's a lot of people in India who want to, like, firm up and strengthen the caste system. To be the highest, the highest caste in India has nothing to do with money or property or even political power. The politicians and the moneyed people are all lower. The highest caste in India is the religious caste, the Brahmins, uh, the, the gurus and the sages and the, uh, the priests. Anyway, in our, in our, in our context, for, for our purposes this morning, it has a lot to do with money and political power and celebrity. And these all kind of rotate in and out of each other. Like I said, we want power because power brings us status. And status gets power for itself. We want to give power to those who have the status, those who have the money, those who have the coolness, those who have the relevancy. Now, uh, Jesus says uh, this is not the way it's going to work, and there's a couple reasons why it's not going to work this way. First of all, because you already can tell it doesn't work this way. We insist, as Westerners, we insist on giving power to people with status, and we're constantly disappointed by them. You know, think about, so let me I'll tell you a story. Um, my family, big fans of Malcolm Gladwell and his podcast, Revisionist History. There was an episode recently where he interviewed this kid named Adam Cronkite. Uh, Adam Cronkite is a Canadian guy, and um, he was in Bolivia working, did, like doing some like Peace Corps type stuff in Bolivia. And he and his he had some friends in Bolivia, many of them who were Bolivian, and they were working in this high school, and they decided. Let's do this. Let's do something different. For student council elections this year, let's not do it the normal way. Let's do what he calls a democratic lottery. What we're going to do is whoever wants to be on student council this year, sign up. 
And there was about 100 kids who signed up. And so they took 100 balls. And uh, let's, say, let's say there was 100 kids, 100 balls. 92 of them were white. Eight of them were colored. And they put the, all the balls in a basket, shook it around, covered it. And each kid who signed up as, as willing to be on student council walked in and reached into the basket and pulled out a ball. And if it was white, they weren't on student council. And if it was colored, they were. And uh, Adam Cronkite said that many of the teachers were like, oh, this is not going to be good. This kid that is on student council now, I'm just telling you, the kid is no good. He's lazy. He sleeps in class. He's a loner or he's abrasive. And as it turned out, that student council got more done in one year than the previous student councils had got done in the four years. And the reason why is, is because what do we value in student council? You remember high school? It's the kid who can talk good in front of people, the kid who's popular, frequently the kid who's got money. And as it turns out, those things have basically no value for leadership. There's no direct correlation between public speaking ability, dynamic personality, money, but this is how we consistently elect our people. As it turned out, Adam Cronkite says, the kid who was the loner, he would be like, you know what? I think I can probably figure out a way to get the, clay, the, the, the playground cleaned up. And he would go out and do it. Whereas the kid the year before who was like popular, wealthy, dynamic, he had, he had really, he loved campaigning. He loved getting elected. But as far as like cleaning up the playground, he either didn't know how to do it or wasn't interested in doing it or probably both. Now, what I'm not, what I'm not arguing for is democratic elections in our, you know, in our country. But what I am saying, though, is that it points out that there is no, contrary to what we think, there's no direct correlation between ability and status. So one of the things that Jesus is pointing out is, guys, you have the wrong idea. Like, status and power does not mean that you're going to be great in the kingdom of God. Instead, the alternative is, he grabs a kid, and he puts him in the midst, and he says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, now this is going to be difficult, because that culture and our culture don't match up, right? In our culture, we love kids. We obsess over kids. We're like, you know, I believe that children are the future. Who's saying that? I, could just, I should have thought about this. Whitney Houston, I think. Anyway, you know, like, we, like kids are so important, you know. Uh, we, uh, again, 18 to 25, even younger than that, you know, like investing in the children, we're all about that. Education, we're all about that. Not so in that culture. Kids are basically a non-entity. Now, uh, let, let me give you a quote from a guy named Everett Ferguson, who is a, a Middle Eastern scholar, and he writes a lot about um, the Greco-Roman world, basically in the Second Temple period in the time of Jesus. And here's what he says about children. Let me read this. Here's what he says about children um, in the Greco-Roman world. From about 230 B.C. onward, the one-child family was common in the Mediterranean, one child. Families of four or five children were extremely rare. There was a certain desire for two sons in case one should die or be killed. That's, that's, uh, that's affectionate, isn't it? But seldom did families raise more than one daughter. A daughter was an economic liability because a dowry had to be supplied in her marriage. The first child of a marriage, if healthy, was almost never exposed. I'll tell you what exposed means in just a second. The answer to, you know, the, the reason why, he goes on to say, the reason why families were so small was, quite simply, infanticide. Abortions were often attempted, but not infrequently were fatal to the mother. They were finally made illegal under Septimius Severus. Septimius Severus 
was the Caesar in around 200 AD. So the Roman Empire uh, finally made uh, abortions illegal around 200 AD. In fact, you know, we read Romans 13, uh, uh, by the way. Uh, Nero's, Nero's government uh, uh, funded uh, abortions in order to keep uh, population down. So, but, uh, uh, abortions, because they were frequently fatal to the mother, were finally made illegal under Septimius Severus. More frequent was the exposure of the newborn child. The unwanted child was simply left to die on the town trash heap or in some isolated place. Sometimes slave traders would take the child to be reared in slavery. Girl babies might be taken to be reared for a life of prostitution. The early Christians actually invented the orphanage in the hospital by going around and collecting exposed babies to, to rear and take care of. Now, th this, is not, this was not necessarily a problem in Judea where Jesus is talking, but attitudes toward ch towards uh, uh, children, although uh, infanticide and abortion were strictly forbidden uh, by the Jews, were not much different in terms of affection. And this is actually, it's within your guys' recent memory that this was the case in the United States, not to the degree that we're talking about in the Roman Empire. But I talked to many people who, who are my father's age who would say, yeah, my dad never one time said, I love you. I know he did. He went to work every day and I always had clothes and we always had a house and always had shoes. And when I needed a ball glove, he got me one. But he actually never would hug me or tell me he loved me. I know he did, but there was this sense in Judaism as well as in you know, 1950s and earlier America that the father's job is to provide for the family and to train the, the, the child so that the child becomes a capable member of adulthood when they reach adulthood. In, in other words, the child is seen, again, more so in the ancient world than in 1950s America. The child is seen as a commodity that has to be raised so that it can be a productive member of society when time comes for it to be adult. But until then, children are to be seen and not heard. Think about, I was um, telling the first, uh, uh, first service this morning. So my mom is in the first service, and she used to read to me H.A. Ray's uh, Curious George books. Do you guys remember those? And the whole message of those original ones was, like, kids, don't be curious. You know, if you're curious, you're going to get in trouble. You know, look at George. He's curious, and he ends up in the hospital, or he destroys somebody's paint job or something like that. And don't be curiosity killed the cat. Keep out of sight, out of mind. The, the time for you to ask questions and to explore the world will come. You'll become 18, and then you can go do that. Right now, though, be quiet and stay hidden. So my kids watched Curious George on channel, on, on, you know, on, on PBS growing up. Exactly the opposite. Curiosity is encouraged. You know, George is curious, and you should be curious too, kids. It's how you, it's how you discover the world, and it's how you learn how to problem solve, and uh, just completely different. And that's why I say it's hard for us to see what Jesus is saying here and not think of sweet little adorable kids who we all love and want to like pat, pat on the head and, hey, you're our future. You know, we, we, we want to lead you into this uh, great new uh, world that you are going to create for us. And um, it's not what Jesus is saying at all. It's not what Jesus is saying at all. He says you should humble yourself like a kid. So remember, the question is one of power. How do you get power? Now, uh, Jesus is not saying you should be sweet and docile like this child here because Jesus knows more about kids than you and I do. And you and I know that kids aren't sweet and docile. It's not, it doesn't take a, very long after birth to realize this thing's noisy and demanding. He, he also doesn't mean humble. He says, be humble like a child. He doesn't mean humble emotionally. Like, oh, you know, shucks. Just out here trying to do my job. 
He doesn't mean humble like that because if you know any kids at all, you know that kids are frequently too unfiltered to be humble. My, uh, I have two kids who both of them over the course of their elementary school years came home and told me that one of their classmates announced in class, I, I'm the smartest one here. Like I think I'm, I, I know I'm the smartest one here. Like imagine that if one of us, like, you know, like say we're standing around after worship this morning, one of us just said, hey, I got to tell you guys something. I'm pretty sure I'm the smartest one here. Like that's, that, that's, but you would never say that, but a kid would because the kid's unfiltered. So he doesn't mean humble in the sense of like, oh, yeah, I'm not anything. What he means is humble in status. Humble as a non-entity. Remember, kids in that culture are non-entities. He's not telling them, hey, here's a kid. I know this kid. This kid's got a great attitude. You should be like him. Jesus is not saying that. He's saying, let me show you what greatness in the kingdom is like. It's like non-status. A better example for our culture might be something along the lines of the Eddie Murphy character in Trading Spaces. And you know the, the, uh, the, um, the two rich guys, Don Amici and then the other guy's name, I can't remember. They own this big, uh, wealthy commodity firm, and they have a bet, you know, over Eddie Murphy, who's a homeless guy. And they drag him into these offices, and he's in rags, and he can't speak very well, and he kind of doesn't know what to do in these big, fancy offices. That's kind of a, a better example of what Jesus is talking about here. Become someone of no, in other words, give up your status. It's not the way power is going to work in the kingdom of God. It's not going to correlate to status and privilege. And look, we're going to talk about this in a few months in the upcoming sermon series. If I ever, I'm going to tell you guys to hold me to account here. If I ever try to make pastor a status here that gives me power, so pastor's not a status out there, but it can be in some churches. And if, I've, if I'm ever like, I'm the pastor you do what I tell you. I'm directly violating the scripture which says that power is not going to correlate to status. And I need you to call me on it. I'm not, it's, and all of us are like this, right? If you are at, at your workplace, if you're like, I need, to, I need to have status so that people will obey me and tell me what to do. I, I need to get the manager title. That's what I'm going for. Or whatever it is. If you're like, I'm going to be in my conversations with people, I'm going to be the guy who gets the last word. That's who I'm going to be. And I'm going to be right. And if anybody disagrees with me, I'm, I'm going to... This is not how power works. You don't get power by being the smart, the, uh, uh, smart guy in the room. If you are like, I'm the person who tells... The, that person tells the story, I've got one better than that. Whatever it is, wherever you're at, whatever it is that, that you're building up in your mind as your status, and I'll have control over my life, and maybe even if, if I'm lucky, I'll have control over some other lives too. Jesus is saying, abandon that for no status at all. If you're going to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to give up your status. Second of all, though, if you're going to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to give away your status. You're not just giving up your own ideas of status. Whatever status you do have, you're going to give away. Look at verse uh, four, 5 here. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Look at that word receive in verse 5. Whoever receives one such child, and now again, don't think, oh, sweet little kids, who can't help but receive those sweet? It's not what Jesus is saying. Whoever takes one of the lowest of the low and receives them, and that word receives there, frequently in the New Testament, has connotations of hospitality. So it's the kind of word you would use to have somebody in your home. Now, in the ancient world, you did not have people in your home unless they were really intimate with you. 
unless they were your close family members or your closest friends. You didn't just invite strangers in. Hey, come over and let's get a bite to eat and we'll get to know each other. So when he's saying, find the non-status people and bring them into your home, he's asking for a really dramatic, radical thing here. Now, how does status work in our culture? Let's examine it this way. We, you get status by taking it from other people. This is how we get status, right? You get power by finding somebody who has power and getting them to like let the globe share with you or even directly give it to you. You get status by bringing people into your life who have status that would raise you. Okay, so again, I'm not recommending this show, but my wife and I are, are, are watching Poldark right now. It's mildly amusing. Uh, and, and it's not really funny, but it's mildly amusing. And in this show, in this show Poldark, the main character, I don't want, I'm going to spoil it for some of you. You don't really need to watch it. The main, the, the main character, Poldark, marries, this is in the 1700s, late 1700s, a Cornwall in England, marries his scullery maid. He marries his scullery maid. You know, true love and whatnot. And uh, all of his friends, upper class friends, they're like just horrified. And they not really gonna, you know, they, they maybe will go over to his house for big events. They might invite him in there. But basically there's a sort of a wall now between them. Why is that? He, he's a landed gentleman. He moves amongst landed people, the lords and ladies. But he married his scullery maid. And so now he, that status goes to him. And there's a barrier now between him and the uppity-ups, even though he himself is an uppity-up. Now, we don't, in, in the West, we don't do that as dramatically. But if you've got money, you're not going to live in a neighborhood with people who don't have money. If, if you have, if you have uh, whatever, I, you know, I, don't, I could think of examples all day long here. But, you know, you, we get our status and our power from our relationships to people who have status and power. I mean, there's a reason why, if you look around most Christian churches, they're all the same color and they're all the same socioeconomic status. is because there's this sense that status is something that we share and foster amongst ourselves. Like, rich people aren't going to come into our church because we're not high enough status for them. But we don't really want poor people coming in here because what will that say about us? And so we find our kind of, you know, the place where the water sort of settles status-wise, and we live in there. And Jesus is saying that's not the way that power works. Power in the kingdom of God is not taken from others. It's given. You receive a child, and by receiving that child, you give them their, you give them your status. Power in Scripture and in, 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 in the kingdom almost always works this way. Look, if you want money, you'll give it away. The one who gives away will have much. You know, if you want everlasting life, to, 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 uh, the, the one who will save, the one who's trying to save his life will lose it. But the one who gives up his life will find it. This is gospel, Christ-centered principle. Same thing here. You want status? You want power? You give it away. Power is, in, in, in the gospel economy, power is only power to the extent to which it's abrogated. In the gospel economy, status is only status to the extent that it's given away, that it's given up and given away. So Jesus is calling his disciples, you want power? You want to go to Jerusalem and be the big shots in Jerusalem? Receive the ones who have no status at all. That's the way the kingdom is going to work. You know, I, I struggle with this as well. Let me just give you another example about myself and St. James. Like, I frequently will find myself thinking, oh, so-and-so is visiting the church, and I know that they have gift A, B, and C, 
they would be so good for St. James. And I find myself like investing myself in them. Why? Because I'm going to get something back. Their status, who they are, is going to benefit St. James, which is going to benefit my status as pastor of St. James. And I will find myself ignoring those in the church who I don't think have anything to give me and fostering and developing and you know, pouring emotional and physical and spiritual and psychological energy into people who I think are going to give me status. And this task, this text, calls me to my knees to repentance. I'm called not to get status from you, but to give status to you. I'm called not to get power from you so that I can do what I want and you have to do what I tell you to do. I'm called to give up my power. This is what Ephesians 4 says, right? Ephesians 4 says God has called pastors to boss people around so they'll do the work of the ministry. No, God has called pastors to equip the saints, Ephesians 4.13 says, so that they will do the work of the ministry. This is the way the kingdom works. Power is only power to the extent that it's abrogated. Status is only status to the extent that it's given up to other people. So first of all, you have to give up status. Second of all, you have to give away status. And then third, you have to get a brand new status from outside of yourself. Look back at verse 5. Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Okay, so I'm giving up all my power and all my status to people who have no power and status. Then I'm not going to have any power and status either. And Jesus says, hold yourself up. You're doing this in my name. You're doing this in my, you are doing this in me. In Jesus Christ, we are called to give up power and status to everybody else. Look, Jesus is the one who gave up, Jesus is the one who created the world and sustains the universe. He gave all that up to become, to come to earth and become human and become completely powerless, to let himself, to let himself be executed so that he could die and rise from the dead and become Lord of the whole universe and have all the power in the world. And now he joins, those of you who believe in him, he joins you to himself so that all that power becomes yours. All right, think about the, for a second, think about the coolest person you know. The coolest person you know. And let's just say, let's just, I'm off the table, okay, so you can't choose me. But let's say whatever culture you're, you know, wherever you grew up, let's say it's Steve McQueen or... Um, you know, who else? Matthew McConaughey is cool. Let's say it's uh, Morgan Freeman or maybe John Coltrane. Okay, think about, look, John, John Coltrane walks into a room. Does John Coltrane, does he ever say, oh my word, I hope these people think I'm interesting. I hope these people like me. No, he never says that. You know why? Because he is infinitely cool. He doesn't, he doesn't, it doesn't bother him at all. He can give out the coolness and it's still there. You remember the, do you remember the kid in high school who wanted to be cool and studied how to be cool? And they, you know, he wore all the right clothes and he listened to the right music and he learned all the cool things to say and he could say them, but there was something wrong. There was something missing because the trappings of coolness were there, but the coolness itself wasn't there. He could give away coolness, but then it was gone because he actually wasn't cool. And the more he tried to be cool, the less cool he seemed. And here's what the gospel is saying. Forget coolness. In Jesus Christ, the one who owns the cattle on the thousand hills, the richest person in the world, you have all the money. All the money in the world in Jesus belongs to you. You're free to give it all away, and there's still more where that came from. All the status in the world, you're free to give it away. And in Jesus, you have infinite status. All the power in the world, you're free to give it up and abrogate it. You don't need it. You know why? Because the more you give it away, the more you have. Because the more you give it away, the more you tap into the infinitely powerful Son of God, who
who loved us and gave himself for us. We are free to be incredibly great in the kingdom of God. And if we're great in the kingdom of God, it means that we are the greatest in the entire universe. Because in Jesus Christ, all of that greatness, all that power, all that status is ours, and it's ours for the giving. Let's pray. God, make us mindful of this, that power is not to be uh, gathered, it's not to be harvested or or, uh, hoarded, but it's to be given away. And in your son, Jesus Christ, that power will be uh, magnified for the sake of the gospel and your kingdom will go forth. And we truly will be the greatest in your kingdom uh, because of the work of your son, Jesus Christ, who sacrificed his own power to work in our hearts to give up the power that we think that we have for his power and his status. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me and we'll continue in prayer. Let's pray. God, we confess this morning uh, once again that you are the all-powerful one, that your son Jesus, who creates and sustains the universe, that your son Jesus, who even now at this moment is causing our brain waves to vibrate, who's causing our hearts to beat, we're not, we're not doing that. We don't even know it's happening unless we think about it. But your son Jesus is causing all of this to happen. He's causing the trees to breathe in carbon dioxide and out oxygen. He's causing all of creation to consist. He is the all-powerful one, and simultaneously, he is the weak and suffering one, the one who gave himself up for us on the cross. God, help us to look to your son, Jesus, for our status and for our power, for our identity. And then when we find it there, by the power of your gospel and the power of your Holy Spirit, liberate us to give it all away so that St. James would grow and expand in its scope and in its witness in its influence here in Glen Carbon, that your kingdom would grow and grow and take over Glen Carbon and Madison County and Illinois and the world. Lord, we need you to do this for us because we always default mode to our own definitions of status and power. Do this for us, God. Convince us afresh by your word of who we are in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I, I want to once again uh, pray for Mardell and her family as her mom, Alvina, passed away yesterday. And just what a brutal time for them. God, help them to find their identity in you. It's, uh, it's, uh, easy, uh, it's easy to doubt your care and your concern when we go through such brutally hard circumstances as this family is going through. Convince them once again that the, that the one they believe in is there and with them and empowering them, convince them one more time afresh of the power of your son's resurrection, the power which is leaking out into the universe even now through your people, through your gospel, and will one day explode and cover all things, making all things new, undoing all the wrong in the world. Give them the grace and comfort and hope to believe that, and be with everybody here who's struggling, and maybe it's not so dramatic, maybe it's something uh, smaller that people don't want to share with the church, or something that people just want to keep to themselves. Whatever it is that's on our hearts now, Father, convince us that your, that your resurrection, the resurrection of your son Jesus, is powerful enough to undo it. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we can only pray these things. Again, we can only pray these things because your son Jesus has bound us up in his own self, in his name, and brings us into your kingdom. Those who have no status and no power brings us into your kingdom as your children, the heirs of all things, the most powerful, the highest status in the whole world. This is not us. This is only you. And so we pray this in the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed this morning.
I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And He will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Yeah.